Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is writer, creative, student, and education advisor, Michelle Quick. In today's show, Quick talks about a kaleidoscopic life, including a childhood of stories and storytelling, becoming a classically trained traveling chef, studying the relationship of expressive arts and integrative healthcare, and returning to writing to explore the complexities of human connection. Quick will also read an excerpt from one of her short stories. I think about writing in different aspects, but I think I've probably had sort of a sneaky belief that the reason why we do anything really in life is just to learn more about ourselves. And so um, it's a really interesting kind of an experience to have to feel connected to your characters and things that are on the page, but yet you are still creating a brand new world. In that sense, it's really freeing. Michelle Quick is a Midwest creative, writer, and the architect of The Howler Project. She's led a kaleidoscopic life, from a classically trained chef to an outdoor guide. Her writing has appeared in numerous literary journals, and she has been honored by the Academy of American Poets. Quick earned an MFA from the University of Nebraska at Omaha, where she is currently an instructor, advisor, and, again, a graduate student in social work and human rights. She also studies integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. Quick's training focuses on releasing trauma through expressive arts, and her research explores the complexities of human connection. Michelle Quick, welcome to Lives. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. When I've spoken before with authors, writers, poets, creators, I've never actually started the show with a reading. And could I invite you, please, actually to start this show with a reading of your work? Sure. Yeah, I think that um, that I imagine some of the topics that we'll talk about today, this would uh, really kind of kick things off. So sure. This is, uh, I'll read about uh, an excerpt from um, a short story, and it's called Firefly. Mavis Griffin threw her head back and dumped the last two pixie sticks into her mouth. She pushed the purple powder from side to side, curling her tongue, imagining there was also someone else's tongue in there sliding around, tasting the sugar between her teeth. She was wearing the red plastic heart-shaped glasses she'd won tossing rings at last summer's Knoxville Fair. She no longer had Petey the fish. He'd jumped down the drain during a bowl cleaning attempt on a happier life. Mavis pushed up the sunglasses with her middle finger. Her thighs burned from the sun-soaked hood of her daddy's beloved 1967 Bolero Red Camaro. She scooted toward the windshield, put her hands behind her head, and reclined. The soft furry underside of one knee rested on top of the other. It was all sweaty up in there, and Mavis wished her mother had bothered to offer anything about becoming a woman before she left in the middle of the night. Her party note hadn't said much, only two stupid words taped to the underside of the toilet lid. Mavis had sat on the edge of the bathtub staring at them until her daddy stumbled through the door and squeezed between her and the commode. Mavis watched a steady stream drench the paper. The tape lost its adhesive and floated into the toilet. Jess Griffin dropped the lid and flushed. Get ready for school, he'd said, squeezing past her again. Mavis inspected herself hourly for signs of the end of girlhood, but still saw red hair, blue eyes, and freckles. She was barely five feet and unfortunately still genuinely liked lima beans. And she still had little tolerance for small talk. Her mama said she'd just been born with it, a gift for telling it like it is. Her daddy, the professor, had never quite adjusted to this. His poetic sensibility seemed to prefer a different kind of beauty. 
From the parking space a few spots away, Mavis watched the doors of the Beaver Creek gas station swing open and shut, loud bells rattling against the glass. It was about time for Jess Griffin to emerge. He'd offer up an explanation as to what he had been doing inside for so long and then give Mavis a gift. When one door crept open silently, Mavis shaded her eyes to get a better look. She saw a backside so big you could set a pitcher of sweet tea on it. The girl had her head stuck inside a magazine, her long blonde hair brushing the pages. On her heels were two boys throwing boiled peanuts at each other. The girl flipped some hair over her shoulders. The boys whooped and hollered. From behind her red plastic heart-shaped glasses, Mavis closely followed this development. The girl took a seat on the rusted bench in front of the Camaro and crossed her legs. The boys whistled as they passed, making their way to a doorless Jeep. They howled and honked as they tore out of the parking lot, spraying gravel. It was quiet again. Mavis looked back to the girl still reading the magazine. A fat robin hopped around on the oil-stained sidewalk. Mavis sat up and hugged her knees. That happened to you a lot, she asked. The girl looked in the direction of the new voice. She blew a large pink bubble and pulled it back until it popped. She returned to reading. Boys, she asked. Yeah. Yeah. What's that like? The girl shrugged. You got a boyfriend? The girl nodded. What's that like? Are you the police or something? Mavis picked at a scab on her ankle. Well, daddy says I'd make a good law enforcement professional. He's inside drinking. My mother abandoned me. We're driving across Tennessee to stay with my grandma Imogene and my best friend Del Rey for the summer, except we're coming out a whole month earlier than we usually do. And daddy says it's to see the magic of the fireflies, but really it's on account of nobody knowing what to do with me. The girl flipped a page. So? So I'm just talking. It don't feel like talking. It feels like an interrogation. Yeah, questions are interrogatory, but you probably only feel you're being interrogated because you aren't participating. All you got to do is put in a little bit more effort here and then we'd be having a conversation. The girl closed the magazine across her arms. And what do you think we have to conversate about? Mavis slid off the car hood. Girl talk, I guess. You asking about sex? Mavis studied a curl. Maybe. The girl laughed. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not? I don't know what all the fuss is about. Jimmy likes it, so we do it. Jimmy, your boyfriend? The girl gestured to the old black pickup at the other end of the lot. Body was bent low, changing a tire. We're going to Las Vegas. Las Vegas? Why? Jimmy's going to be a blackjack dealer, and I'm going to be his wife. We're going to raise a beautiful family. Mavis kicked at the robin looking for crumbs. The girl's arm suddenly flew into the air. She shouted, baby, you get it fixed? Jimmy slammed the toolbox lid and wiped his hands on his jeans. He bowed in her direction before opening the passenger door like a prince in a fairy tale. The girl giggled. She turned to Mavis with a wide smile, a small gap showing between her front teeth. Looks like we're on the road again. She jogged toward the truck and flung herself onto Jimmy, wrapping her legs around his waist. He twirled them in circles and then tossed her into the cab. She scooted to the middle of the seat and rested her head on his shoulders as they drove away. Mavis slumped onto the bench. The forgotten magazine fluttered. On the cover was a woman biting her lip and squatting in a pair of sunshine-colored heels. Her green dress was pulled all the way up to what Del Rey called the geranium. The bells on the door rattled. Jess Griffin walked out. Mavis leaned a little more into the shade. Jess walked to the car and got in. He looked over to her empty seat, to the seat behind, and then got back out. He eventually found her on the bench. Hey, darling, her daddy said. Mavis gnawed on the inside of her cheek. Best get going. Mavis stayed put. Come on now, I want to get there before dark. That means we're not making any more stops then, she asked. He balanced himself, one arm on the door and one on the roof of the Camaro and hung there. Get in the car, Mavis. The door squeaked as she shut it.
Jess was smiling again. He handed her a lukewarm glass bottle. Got my girl a cherry pop, he said with a wink to match those cherry red glasses. He ran his fingers through his curly brown hair and wiped the sweat around his temples. Oof, I still can't believe I'm watching a war on the TV in the 21st century, he said, broadcasting it like a Sunday football game. I lost track of time listening to the updates. I'm sorry. Mavis rolled her eyes. Jess put the key in the ignition, pushed in the clutch, and paused. When he still hadn't moved, Mavis nervously looked over at him. He was staring at his hands. It took him several tries to meet her eyes. I was just remembering something Jack Kerouac said about stars. Whiskey filled up the humid space, and Mavis took a shallow breath. Jess stretched his fingers taut and stared at his hands. He said that it doesn't matter what happens, what I do, what I did. None of it is real. The endless universe of stars and mountains, it's all in our mind. He looked at her again, his eyes moving around her face. Don't you think that's pretty? He asked. She thought it was the saddest thing she'd ever heard. He looked disappointed when she didn't answer. Well, I do. The SS engine turned over and the motor spit to a roar. Mavis felt a headache coming on. How long? She asked. He rolled out of the gravel lot and punched it when they reached pavement. Two hours? He yelled back. The wind whipped into Mavis as she leaned against the open window. She watched the clouds holding onto their forms for as long as she could before they disappeared into the rear view. Thank you so much for reading that. And that was an extract from? Uh, that's a short story called Firefly. Thank you. So just that extract, that short story made me think about Mavis and her yearning for some sense of understanding, some perception that she's exploring what it is to emerge as a fully formed person later in life. This curiosity about that and, and working out her own sense of identity and potential. And so it makes me wonder about you too. Clearly you love stories. You love storytelling. And I wonder not to suggest by any means that Mavis is a, a autobiographical character, but in that sense to use her as it were as a, as a way to open that door. What was storytelling like for you when you were younger? What was the first story you heard? What was the first story you told? I don't know if I remember telling one specific story. It's probably just a sort of a, a collection of, of tall tales mostly. So I, I grew up in central Missouri and I think if there was probably a word, if I had to pick like one word to describe kind of growing up there in my childhood, I would say it was probably just chaotic. It was I grew up in a, it was sort of a half resort area, Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri. And at that time it was sort of a half of a resort area, but also half of just wild woods and kind of running around barefoot. I was always in a swimming suit because there was a you know massive lake there, but, um, and then also just barefoot and just kind of, um, really just an unchecked kind of childhood. And so I would just, uh, kind of come up with these fantastical stories that I like to write for my mom and, Usually it was Bigfoot. <laughs> there was always like Sasquatch involved, but I, I didn't like the idea of him being this kind of terrorizing character. He needed to sort of be helpful. And so he would, during the day, he would, you know, help me pick berries or if there was a tall apple that I couldn't reach. I mean, he was always very helpful and we were friends, you know, versus you know, kind of, I guess what we think about um, that kind of Sasquatch character. So 
I think probably though, I, I mean, I do remember a little bit of that, but my, my grandma, she, um, she opened up a beauty salon and I started spending my, most of my summer days there. My mom did her book. She was an accountant for, for my grandma for a while. And I had actually just, I had really forgotten. I mean, I knew that I had spent time with her quite a bit there, but the specifics of that I'd forgotten recently, um, my grandma passed away over, um, over Christmas. And so we were looking for at photos and things and um, I saw this photo of me and I was in the middle of her beauty salon and it was pretty small, you know, at the time this was the eighties. So it was kind of a one room sort of deal. And I, it was a picture of me in the middle and there were these seven women and some had curlers and some were under, um, you know, a dryer and some had foil in their hair and caps and things. And they were all watching me. And I was like, just doing some wild pose from like Saturday night fever or something. It was <laughs> I mean, who knows, but we, we had a good laugh about it. And I started to remember all of that time that I had really just kind of forgotten. And I loved being there, the energy of being around those women. And they told such hilarious stories. And of course I was way too young to be listening to some of them, but then I didn't you know, really understand the topics too much about it, but it was usually about their relationships with their husbands and that kind of thing, or things that they were struggling with as far as like aging and that kind of thing. And the topic I don't think was, was really that important. What I loved about it was that kind of, um, I think the thrill that came from sharing your story with someone and having them react or respond to it, you know, in some way. And, and I knew that I just, that I wanted to do that, but I was also so little that they, you know, didn't really give me too much attention. So this is again, back in the eighties when there was, this, you know, such a thing as VHS tapes and things. And so we, we had a, um, um, a blockbuster down the street. And so I went to blockbuster and you could rent like five movies for five days for $5, which is all my parents would let me do at the time. And so I became obsessed with Saturday night live videotapes. And there was, um, especially, uh, Gilda Radner was my favorite. And I, I don't know. I mean, I was probably like six or seven. I mean, I was really young and I still don't know really what it was about Gilda Radner, but I just thought she was amazing. And so she had this character called, uh, Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. And I just would mimic everything that Roseanne, Rosanna, uh, Rosanna did. And so she was just, she really wasn't honestly like a very nice character too. You know, she tend to kind of, I guess she was a little bit like Mavis in a way, um, you know, she kind of just called it out and sort of called it how she saw it. But anyway, I just became kind of obsessed with that character. And so I went the salon and just kind of inhabited that character and that voice and those mannerisms. And, um, I certainly got that attention very quickly and I, I loved it. I loved that, you know, that kind of whole atmosphere. Like you always knew too, that when something good was going to come from, from a story there, because it, it would get kind of quiet in the room and all of the women would sort of lean in. And then you knew that something really funny was coming and then there was that silence and then the room would just sort of erupt with laughter. And so I really tried to kind of figure out the specifics of that and, and kind of adjust from there. But the byproduct of all of that kind of obsessive sort of watching and observing is that I got really good at impersonations. Um, and I, for a while, like my family, um, if you called, I, my voice was especially deep as a kid. So I could do like my dad's voice really well, my brother. And if you were to call, sometimes I would just pretend to be them, you know, just for the heck of it. And, <laughs> um, and I would often call the school and I, because I certainly didn't want to go to school when I could hang out with my grandma and all of those women. 
So that's kind of what I did. I mean, I would just, I'd spend the night at my grandma's house and then I would pretend to be my dad and I would call to school and I would always have a belly ache or something. And this went on for quite a while until we, <laughs> we got sort of found out. And then there was sort of the no more seeing grandma on a school night kind of rule. But, um, but yeah, I loved it. I mean, from the very beginning, that, that sort of imaginative aspect of stories and, you know, sort of the atmosphere and the environment of live storytelling for sure. You have this experience as a child in the salon and, and the love of your grandmother, but also the experience of being able to play with a story in a way that could captivate people around you and not necessarily manipulate them, but, but conjure something in that relationship that changed that moment in some way. There's, there's a power in telling stories. And I wonder if that's how you thought about it at the time. You, you could sense that there was a certain magic in storytelling that had an ability to change the shape of the world and the people around you. Yeah, absolutely. I think magic is probably the best word for that. I mean, especially live storytelling. I still like, I love going to readings and, and listening to, um, to someone read their piece. And it's so it's such a different experience than just having it on a piece of paper and reading it separately. So, but yeah, there's, there are lots of different levels there with that magic quality. Sure. I think you use the word obsession, but maybe that compulsion, that obsession, almost maybe, you know, addiction to do something that's calling to you, calling something, you know, that's in you that wants to respond. How did you respond to that? You, you have this experience in the salon you're telling stories, you're creating these narratives with Bigfoot, you're impersonating people and forming characters, uh, either people you know or people that you don't know. How did you take that as a child and begin to realize how that might be manifested perhaps in an adult world as you grew up? I would never have been able to articulate that at the time, but I, it, that sort of, um, I guess, performing or that performative aspect of, of stories. And I think really just of my personality, really that carried pretty much through high school. And I think really, I mean, now again, that I'm older and kind of looking back what I loved, I loved obviously telling stories and, and being in that kind of world and that creative world and imaginative world that all felt very home at home to me. I felt at home there and I felt safe there, but I think I really, what I loved about all of that, I just enjoyed being other people. I think if, you know, anybody who's sort of um, grown up in the world and maybe felt like that they were either uh, just not quite right in it, it's such a relief to sort of, you know, let yourself go and, and literally become someone else for a while. And so for me, that was it. And it took a, a long time to really kind of move past that. And, you know, adult roles that we play are things like husband, wife, um, parent, that kind of thing, um, jobs, you know, have multiple roles. And so I think in that sense, for me, it's been sort of a lifelong thing. And I'm doing, you know, there's as far as balance goes, these days are so much better. But um, I used to very sort of same way that I was as a kid, just throw myself in it 100%. I'm either, I've never been kind of a, a halfsy. <laughs> so I'm never half in and half out. I'm either in it or I'm not. And that's really where all of my attention and my energy goes. And it's been that way for jobs. I mean, even though I've had multiple jobs at the same time, there's, I've always been fully committed to those. Or if I've been in a relationship, I'm, that person is it for me. There's no one else. And so friendships, same thing. So I think in that, in that sense, it's, it's again, so nice um, 
because you you know that that's it. You know, that's what you have to do for the day or that's who you are right then. And there isn't that much of that kind of brain wandering about, you know, again, I would never have been able to articulate it. And I doubt I really thought about existential dread, you know, when I was six or seven. But now I think that's in that sense, it, it helps me kind of balance out all of those thoughts. The one word that you chose to describe your childhood was chaotic. And so the sense I'm getting from you is that storytelling and it's the, the wonder of it, the imaginative power of it and the ability to use it to even shape your real world feels a bit like an escape in some ways. Is that still how you feel about writing or has that evolved into something more dynamic, more faceted? I might have said something differently before the MFA program. I might have thought about that maybe in kind of a, a separate sort of escapist kind of way. I enjoyed telling stories with friends and I was always, you know, kind of animated then. But as far as actually writing, I took a really long break from writing. I, I graduated um, in the early 2000s with a bachelor's degree and kind of went on a completely different separate path with the chef world. But I, I basically took... Um, I mean, almost, you know, about 15, 16 years off. And then um, for whatever reason, it just came back. And I remember writing a story. It just kind of sat down and there was a story that I wanted to tell. And it was about a little girl and it it was not good. (laughs) It was not very good at all. So, but I I realized, you know, that I, I think that that's something that I wanted to do. How I discovered our MFA program, I was on a long term hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, or rather I was getting ready to do that. And I was out in California, just visiting some friends for spring break. And Berkeley has a uh, kind of a larger kind of program that they do for like anybody who wants to learn more about the Pacific Crest Trail and that kind of thing. And so I was out there again, just visiting a friend for spring break, but we decided to attend one of those. And I ended up running into uh, just a poetry reading from one of our mentors in the program. And I was just blown away. And I was at a point in my life where I didn't really have attachments to too much. There was nothing, there was no real anchors kind of keeping me around. And I, for whatever reason, I just remembered that a very long time ago, I, I liked the idea of being a writer and I was, you know, kind of, again, I would seem, it sounds strange because I mean, given that I forgot all of that, I think that experience with my grandma, it's weird. I think how memory kind of plays and comes back and in and you know, it's strange times, but I, I trust in the synchronicity of it. And I trust in the universe that I'm, you know, sort of where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. And so I think the MFA program certainly came along at, at a right time for me. You know, I like to joke about midlife crises, and these types of things, but I would say, I mean, that's probably really it. You know, I, I joke about that, you know, that I got an MFA for, for my, for my first midlife crisis. I'm sure there will be more, but yeah, it was a wonderful experience. And so it's, it certainly changed, I think, my, my view of, of writing. And I don't look at, at writing now or creating as a form of escaping. It's kind of, I guess, maybe the opposite of embracing or maybe trying to process something. I'm very careful about not calling it cathartic because it's never been that way for me. And again, that may be because now that I've had formal training, I, I think about writing in different aspects. But what it is, is I think is, it's, I write as maybe a way to figure out, well, I, I, was, I think we can probably expand that to much more than writing. I think I've probably had sort of a sneaky belief that the reason why we do anything really in life is just to learn more about ourselves. And so this story that I read at the beginning with, with Mavis, I have, I have not had that experience, but what I can certainly feel is I know about her feelings and I know about her emotions and 
and how that might play out. And so I think in that sense, it's, um, it's a really interesting kind of an experience to have to feel connected to your characters and things that are on the page, but yet you are still creating a brand new world. In that sense, it's really freeing. So your bio references your kaleidoscopic life, but it's interesting that you've talked about rediscovering writing, but through a different lens, whether that's of just time, who you are in different times and places, what you need from it, what it needs from you. So now it sounds like you have a little more rigor, a little more discipline, as it were, around your craft. How do you approach the craft of writing? Oh, Stuart, that is like <laughs> it's like the biggest question. It's also one that I secretly hate. <laughs> well, now that I've told you, it's not a secret. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, I am probably the last person to ask about what is your writing process. I, I can understand why, I, at least rather, I can understand why other people have expressed that it's not a question that they love. What is it that you hate about the question? Mm. One is that when you, I think the word process implies that there's some sort of like repetitious behavior. And for me, it's not, um, it's not as, I guess, you know, all willy nilly is it as maybe, you know, if I have an idea, I write it. I mean, it's, it's not certainly as unstructured unstructured as that, but for me, I, it does generally start with an idea. And I usually, I think, feel very strongly about characters first. And I, I can see them uh, living out maybe an experience or sometimes it could even just be a sentence that they want to say or something that they've heard. And so usually it will start something like that, you know, really small, but it definitely changes. Sometimes there's a plot and I just think that I really want to write that story or I, you know, something is, is not as attached to characters. Again, it's maybe just a vague idea of, oh, wouldn't it be cool to tell a story from, you know, someone who lives in Oregon, you know, or something. So it's, I guess maybe just, there is the inspiration that strikes first. It's really broad, I know, but if maybe it's just an inspiration to do something or a motivation that just nags at me you know, and then it kind of develops from there. I've never been a planner ever, <laughs> like in my whole life. And that certainly I feel like applies to writing as well. I know I have friends who will plan out entire stories and sometimes they have backstories, their characters have like full dossiers. And these are, I mean, it's information that would never go into the story, but they really have it all down. And then they, you know, they kind of stick to that. To me that I've, this has been, I think, called a really romantic view by, um, again, based on my formal training, you know, from the MFA program, it's been called kind of a romantic view about writing. But for me, I think I like to retain a little bit of that mystery and that magic. There is a, a fine line between letting your characters just take hold of your story and run away with it. And that's certainly, I feel like, you know, a possibility if you choose to kind of approach writing like I do. But at the same time, I, I feel like saying that I know exactly where I want to go with a piece. And then I are saying, you know, exactly that I know what I want to say with something is a little bit disingenuous. And I, I don't, I don't like that idea. I like writing and then kind of figuring out where the story goes from there and adjusting as needed. Writing seems to be this solitary endeavor. Uh, and yet writers, I think, are are very sociable creatures, if I can use that stereotype. Do you belong to a community of writers? Do you share your work? Do you workshop your work? Or do you have a very kind of isolated way of, I don't know, developing 
the story or the poem or the piece and the characters? I've never really been, I, I do have certainly friends um, that I would refer to as like my, my writer friends. Um, and we, you know, we have good conversations about that. I've never been one to go to a workshop. I've gone to retreats before and things, and I've, I've never been able to, to turn out anything there. What that experience was and is usually for me is kind of just a massive like information gathering time period, I guess. And when we would have even our MFA residencies, which are like nine or 10 days or something, I forget what they are now. But for me, it was always very difficult to generate anything during that time, like anything of substance. It was usually just, again, listening, keeping things in my mind as long as I could, and then going home and then and then writing it. It's I, I'm someone who just generally can't generate on the spot, which is, I think now that I've I've said that out loud is strange given kind of how I started out, just standing in front of people and just saying things and, you know, seeing if they would laugh. And maybe that's just a, a part about getting older is that you have a little bit of that reservation of, of creating, you know, that sort of pause before you do. My niece does not have that. I've, it's so interesting to watch her create. And my nephew to some extent was that same way, but I think I just noticed it more with my niece because she is kind of more of a, like a, a creative person. So she's always painting. She, I don't know if she's really like written full stories yet because she's only seven, <laughs> but she certainly kind of has that aspect. But I, I, she's kind of like my spirit animal in a lot of different ways. She's like, I mean, the way that she dresses, that she approaches clothes, like she doesn't want to wear anything that doesn't just, she, as she says, feels good on her skin. <laughs> she calls them her comfies. I'm like, this is a great life. I totally support you. This is a wonderful life view. But her artistic uh, approach is exactly the same way. So I'll share a story with you real quick so you kind of know what I mean. It was Christmas time a couple Christmases ago, and I asked her to make me some little kid art because little kid art is kind of the best. And so she, no hesitation, okay. You know, and so she had gotten some new pastels for Christmas. And so she immediately picked up a paper and just started going to town. And so I was chatting with my nephew. And I mean, it was maybe maybe three minutes. She's already done. She's created her masterpiece. So she comes over and she shows it to me and I'm looking at it. And at first I was like kind of horrified because it looked like that maybe someone had gone in the woods with a cup of coffee and then there was a slaughter or like a massacre or something. I had no idea what was going on, but I was like, oh my God. So as I'm staring at it, um, I guess it was pretty obvious that I was confused. And so my nephew laughs and he says, you don't know what it is, do you? And he says, it's a reindeer eating a holly bush. And I was like, oh, of course it is because it's Christmas time and you're drawing me, you know, a themed piece. Of course it is. And so my niece, who is, you know, observing this whole kind of interaction, she's has her hand on her hip and she said, I can't help it if you don't understand what I'm doing. And then she goes over and she grabs it back from me. And then she somehow, again, she was maybe maybe like five or six at this time, she somehow like manages to embody an artist who has like suffered years of oppression for her aesthetic. And she says, I don't have to explain my art to you people <laughs> and just sort of walks away. And I, that has stayed with me for various reasons, but I think I love just that, just going for it, just grabbing a, a pastel or a pen or sitting down at your computer and just typing and not thinking about what it's going to be or how it's going to turn out. And really, honestly, does it have to be anything? 
I think about that all the time because it can be, I think, really paralyzing for a, a lot of people who are creative when they start to think about the end product before they've even created something. It's it's really hard to get out of that mindset for me anyway, once I do. So I, I try to keep my niece in mind and I still have that, even though to me, it still looks like I'm going to be really honest, like a horror movie massacre, but I, I do have it on my wall in my office as a reminder. Of <laughs> as we were chatting off air, you talked about characters and it sounds like your niece actually is, is one of these people. You talked about sassy girls and it feels to me as if what you're describing is to some degree, your niece is in this moment, in this story, there was some sass there. Oh, 100%. Yes. 100%. Okay. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, and clearly it's a way of being and a mindset that, that you appreciate and, and you admire and you love her and you love her for that. And it makes me wonder, given what you're describing, is there also a little bit of envy in some ways, this, this desire for you too to have that kind of presence and way of being in the world, especially given, of course, that she was five or six and, and now you and I, we're sitting here adults and, and the world perhaps seems different to us. So I'm just curious, you know, is, is there a sense of longing in you for that? Mm, well, that's a word I use often for a lot of different things, the longing word. What I love about her is that she, I think in some way she is aware of repercussions for her behavior, but she pushes through anyway. I mean, you can, when, especially when she was even younger, like before she was forming full sentences, you could see the wheels turning and you would tell her not to do something, but you could see the wheels turning where she was actually thinking about, is this worth it? Like if I, you know, and it could just be something as simple as, you know, getting an extra uh, glass of milk or something. It's like, is this worth it to me? And it was always <laughs> probably, I would say like 90% of the time, yeah, it was worth it. You know, she was going to risk getting in trouble for this behavior, but she would push through. She has a way of, of standing up for herself. And my nephew, again, is it's interesting, like maybe it's, a, I don't know exactly what it is, whether it's maybe like the first you know, the, the oldest child or the second child, I, I'm the second child. And so my, or the youngest child, my brother is, is older than me and we're actually five years different. So my brother is five years older than me. My nephew is five years older than my niece. And honestly, like looking at pictures, my niece looks just like me. We look so similar at that age. And so it's, I'm sure that that's, you know, I'm kind of attaching myself to that behavior a little bit in a sense. And certainly I think being around my niece, I think about my childhood a lot more, but she just has a way of, of standing up for herself and saying exactly what she means and, and what she wants and then going for it. And that's, and also saying no, I think, you know, when she doesn't want to do something, she says no. And I've, that has been a lifelong battle for me as well is just learning the no word and I think maybe being a little bit more selective of what I take that comes my way and simply just because it's there, do I move forward with that? Or do I maybe wait for something that might align with my future goals and things a little bit more? I want to dive back a little bit then into your kaleidoscopic life. And you mentioned being a chef. So there was this period in between your exploration as a storyteller when you were younger and your bachelor's degree to then doing the MFA that we were just chatting about. And you mentioned being a chef. So how did that emerge? What, what was it that drew you into food, food preparation and being a chef? 
Well, I like my first job was I had when I was 12 years old and I was flipping pizzas. And so working in a, that kind of resort area with Lake of the Ozarks, those jobs were usually the easiest for, you know, younger kids to have restaurant jobs. That's pretty typical. Um, and so I, I kept a restaurant job, you know, all throughout college just for pocket change and things and, or through my undergraduate years anyway. But I didn't actually start cooking until after I, I graduated um, with my undergraduate degree. And I, for whatever reason, I think, it seemed to, to fit. I knew that at that, there was a lot of different levels of me not being able to, you know, kind of have access to language in a way that I used to. And I hated being on stage at that point. I hated all attention. And I, there was this, this desperate need to disappear sort of into the world. And I, I don't mean that in, in a dramatic way. I kind of mean that like literally, like I really just wanted to go somewhere where no one knew where I was or who I was. And I just wanted to get lost into the world. And there was this great appeal about it. And I, I remember reading, like when I was reading, you know, very, these larger novels and these great kind of coming of age tales in my undergraduate years and thinking that I really wanted to be a writer, but really what I wanted was I, I wanted to experience life. I just wanted to live. And I, I didn't want you know, the, any safety nets to be there. And so it, cooking really brought that on. And so I, I took, um, a job as a, as a sous chef for a while at a fine dining restaurant. And then I, uh, took on a job like as a traveling chef and that's really what just gave me the ability to do that. And so we would travel everywhere and we would stay for maybe, mm, usually whatever would, what, you know, kind of tour season was usually it's maybe like three or four months and you would work with a group and then you would just pick up and go. And so for a while, I mean, I lived out of like, I had a Patagonia, um, it's like a 120 liter bag and that's all that I owned. And it was so wonderful and so liberating. And it also allowed me to access that creative side of myself. Culinary school did the same thing where you're, you are, they would drop us off um, at, at the market and there would be like maybe 10 minutes left before the market closed. And so you would have to go around and you would be your goal was to make a four course meal, but you would go around and you just had to find whatever you could, you know, that was available with 10 minutes left in the fresh market and then throw together a meal. And I loved that. It was my favorite, my favorite thing in the world because the stakes are, are high, you know, but it's also culinary school. So it's not going to be like the end of the world, but the stakes were high and I loved the energy and the create the sort of the creative aspects and there was no time to maybe think, you know, about what really that you were doing or second guessing whatever came about or an idea that you might have had for a sauce or a dish or something, you had to follow through with it. And then if something didn't go right, you had to be a really, you know, again, kind of think on your feet and, and switch things at the, you know, very quickly, kind of at the last minute. And I, I loved all of it. It was just, it was such a liberating thing. And so I think when I think about cooking, I also think about getting a little bit lost in the world too. So where did you take your 110 pound or was it 110 pounds Patagonia bag? Oh. <laughs> well, it was, it was 120 liter, 120, 120 liter. liter yeah. Sorry. <laughs> a little bit of a difference. Maybe, yeah. yeah, very, there's a big difference. Uh, 120 liter Patagonia bag and head off to, I mean, I would imagine that oftentimes it was quite a surprise where you would go and probably as you say, you're looking to explore the world. It must've been quite invigorating finding yourself in all of these different unexpected places. 
Yeah, it was. And because you're not there very long, it's you, I, I, well, um, I guess I'll speak for myself, but I'm pretty sure this is probably true for a lot of people when they travel, you don't really get to know the, the negative side of where you're living. So it, you just fall in love with a lot of different places. And I, I think that's still kind of a lot of, of, I guess that time in my life has carried over. I don't think about home in, in the same way as I used to, meaning that it has to sort of be an established place. I think more when I think about home, home to me is is people. I found home in people before. I found my home in a job before. Um, I don't view possessions really the same way. In fact, I get, I think, kind of really anxious when I visit someone's home and they have a lot of stuff, which my mom and my dad still do. They've, I mean, she's managed to keep things. They've been married forever. She would be upset that I don't know how long, but a long time, Stuart. <laughs> you know, and so they've lived in the same house for a while. And so I, I get nervous when I are anxious, I guess, probably like I feel a little bit claustrophobic when people have a lot of, of things, you know, just around that aren't serving a purpose. So I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of that is I don't, I just don't get attached to those. I think the maybe things that people do when they are certain, when they're kind of, of, you know, the age that I am, I think I just view a lot of that very differently. And so I could be there's still this this feeling of kind of being ready at a moment's notice, you know, just to leave and and up and leave and go somewhere else and do something else. So, you said that part of your decision making was the sense that you didn't have any particular anchors that were holding you in a certain way to either a particular kind of career or vocation or a place. Maybe not even particular people. Um, is that something that you had this wanderlust feeling to go to be a travel chef and encounter so many different experiences in so many different places? Was there then a changing, a shifting in you where you did feel, oh, I, I want anchors? Did that shift for you? And what were those anchors? I started there. We worked with, um, I mean, pretty much the same people for, for a while. Um, you know, every now and then we would sort of get someone in, but I worked with the same people for a while and I, I started helping a few people on my staff. It was just a motley crew of, of, you know, just a wide variety of, of troublemakers. And I say that with the deepest affection. So I fit in really well with them for, for, <laughs> for whatever reasons. Um, but I helped a few of them start to get their GEDs and I, I fell in love with, um, with the idea of maybe doing something more with my life, but not really, you know, knowing what that would be. And then I just happened to be, um, home and I, in Springfield, that's where I graduated with my undergraduate degree, just visiting friends and, um, just fell in love with the boy and it's been called, you know, kind of history from then. And, um, and I realized very quickly that, yeah, that I was clearly missing a lot of, of attachments and, and things. And there were lots of holes that needed to be filled. So, I mean, again, it, I, I trust in, in synchronicity and what I, to me, synchronicity is really just being carried kind of by the universe. Um, it's not, not that you don't have any desires or any goals or anything that you want out of life, but really it's more that life is kind of being lived through you. And if you kind of trust in that, then, then you get what, what you really need. That went away for a while during the pandemic and for, I think, a lot of different people, but it's, it's back now. And so I've a lot, it's, it's to me, that kind of just relieves, um, I guess, some urgency about the next step you know, what's, what's around the corner. And it happened, you know, certainly at that time in my life with cooking and then transitioning to be being in a long-term relationship and there were children and 
and that kind of more of a, of a caretaker role on a lot of different levels. And I loved that too. And then I also went back to school and became a teacher and I taught high school for a while. And from there, it's just uh, kind of all been along that more of that helping path. And to me that, that I feel really fulfilled. I think when I, when I think about doing something like that, like I don't have questions about what am I doing with my life? Those seem to go away when I think about being in that kind of helping role. Which is probably a good point then to begin to talk about integrative medicine and what that is, why you're studying it, and how that perhaps ties into how we live our lives creatively. So let's start with what is integrative medicine? Well, and it's it's more, I think, of of an umbrella term. I've you know, if you were to Google uh, what is you know integrative medicine and you look it up, it's a lot of different a um, lot of different combinations and, and sort of definitions. But the idea is more or less is that you are viewing um, health kind of more on the holistic level. It usually incorporates more than just traditional, or I guess what we would maybe view as modern medicine. So it might incorporate things like acupuncture. It might incorporate. Um, Reiki and healing stones, crystals, that kind of thing. So a, a wide variety. And really what it just means to me is that I'm meeting my my patient or my client wherever they are. Same thing I do with my students is I just meet them, try anyway to meet them exactly where they are and kind of sort of suss out what their needs may be and how I can help them. So that's really just what I, th- to me, integrative medicine is. And at the University of Arizona, they have a, a really cool approach to that. And so their program, you can actually be, um, a medical doctor and attend the program just for a little bit of extra training. And my brother is, you know, I've talked with, with him about this and I, I don't think he thinks it's exactly silly, but we, we do sometimes go back and forth on validity is probably a good word, you know, some of these things because he's a surgeon. And so he's been through medical school and he's done all of that. And so he's certainly approaching when he approaches, I think medicine or, or helping it's really from that kind of there's certainly a wall and I imagine that's there for a lot of different reasons, but he's really detached, I think from the whole process. And I'm the opposite where again, I'm, I'm really invested and I, in social work, we call that empathy fatigue. And I, so I have to, I know that that's something that I'm going to have to watch out for because I tend to sort of take on the problems of, of whoever I'm working with. And I do the same thing with students. I'll just wake up kind of in the morning and think, Oh my God, I hope that student did what I asked them to do, you know? And, and so I have to kind of backtrack with that. But yeah, I, I love the idea of just having some kind of holistic wellness practice. And that can include everything from just, you know, working with traditional medical doctors, because certainly a lot of that is necessary. But, you know, yoga practicing to expressive arts therapy, you name it. I mean, really just kind of trying to meet, again, my patient or my client, wherever they are, because we are holistic people. And when I was considering what I wanted to do, I looked at neuroscience programs, I looked at psychology programs, and I think I'm still fascinated by all of that, especially neuroscience. I love the idea of sort of knowing what's going on with my body in that kind of um, physical way, you know, while I'm experiencing a feeling. But I, I chose social work because social work seems much more holistic than some of the others. Psychology, it seems where you are focusing a lot on behaviors and it seems like that any behavior could be maladaptive. You know, I, there seems to be kind of that approach to that. And I, but I just liked the idea of, of being open to exploring a lot of different avenues on the road to health, I guess. It's probably the best way to put that. How are you seeing in particular the art, the magic of stories, storytelling 
as a part of this larger picture that you're describing? Well, I think it, it probably started to develop during the pandemic. I Multiple times in my life, I've felt just the loss of language and I really had no idea that, that it's actually something that happened. So we, we now know, I mean, from brain scans, you know, in science that when you experience trauma and it could be anything from acute trauma to advanced trauma, whatever it might be, there's an area in your brain called the Broca's area. And so basically your Broca's area is responsible for language production. And it essentially kind of goes offline or it can anyway, when someone experienced trauma and you literally lose access to language, um, to words and kind of articulating what it is that, that you're experiencing. And that can be particularly frustrating and alarming because when we are also experiencing trauma, um, our limbic system, which is sort of like the emotional brain, our emotional center, that's also activated. So we're in this kind of high or this state of, of high alertness of being activated, but yet we've lost the ability to talk about what's going on. And so that, that certainly happened to me during the pandemic um, for a, in a lot of, of, for I think several different reasons, but uh, I noticed it in a lot of different settings. And at, at the time I had just basically moved to Omaha and accepted this new job as an advisor where I was supposed to be helping students through that. But yet we were all going through this, such a, you know, just a unique thing. And so I, I tried my best with it, but um, I noticed that there was, for me anyway, there was, there was intake, there was a lot of intake happening. So I could walk along, for example, I live pretty close to Memorial Park and I would walk along and I would see tulips blooming and I would see, you know, kind of swaying in the wind behind a tree or something. And I, I could, I noticed that that was happening and I could, there was a sense of maybe peace or or beauty there. But when I would maybe go home and try to write about that, I had no idea. I couldn't find the word for beauty. I couldn't find the word for peace. And so it was an, an extra layer of like, what in the world is happening to me? So I started doing a lot of research on it and I stumbled upon, um, I think just some really interesting thinkers um, and the book of the body keeps the score, which has completely changed my life and really changed how I've approached health and wellness and focusing on my body more so than the mind. And if you uh, aren't familiar with that book at all, it's uh, he talks a lot about basically how our bodies hold on to trauma and how that kind of plays out in a lot of funky ways or rather how it can. And so to me that just being, I think, more knowledgeable about how I'm moving in the world and that kind of thing is, has been such a game changer for me personally. And with expressive arts, I love the idea. It's essentially just anything that you might do for expression. So it could be certainly visual art or visual storytelling, like collages, paintings, drawings, sculpture, that kind of thing. But it could also be songs, music, theater, moving your body, definitely writing. And again, I, I don't like the idea of just limiting one thing like talk therapy. And because again, you might just not have access to the language that you need. So in that sense, expressive arts therapy really kind of encompasses, I think, a lot of different um, a lot of different ways of helping and growing. So you founded, you're a co-founder of the Howler Project. And part of the objective of that is grounded in the belief that the arts are a universal language and storytelling is a bridge to human connection. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about what the Howler Project is and if in creating that you have found that it as well as storytelling has helped you form different more nuanced human connection so the howler had it, it's gone through several 
several iterations for sure in, in its current form. It, it's still, you know, still growing, obviously, but yeah, the the idea with the howler and and storytelling connection through storytelling is certainly not a new concept. Um, you know, this kind of the idea of of having a collective and an arts collective or something is certainly not a new concept. But I, I still think that there is, um, I guess, maybe needs to be more space for just celebrating stories and storytelling. What I liked about that, the howler for me originally is um, when I was I was working with uh, kids and behavioral centers and um, they were in there for a lot of different reasons and experiencing a lot of different things and that kind of uh, or that kind of life. But I we started writing, trying to anyway, write full stories and it beginning, middle end, you name it. And we talked a lot about writing and then I learned very quickly or, or recognized really quickly that this was not working. But what they were able to do is they were they were able to really get the heart of the piece or the problem or maybe a lesson or something. They got that immediately. And sometimes that was the first thing that they wrote. And so we we cut back from from trying to write entire stories or even write something that might be a little bit shorter yet still in a container like a poem. We just wrote and we wrote about whatever it is that that popped up. And so um, we were in a uh, workshop one day and we had just kind of started, you know, switch over to do um, this kind of, of thinking about writing and, and this concept in this way. And a kid got up and he said, okay, I'm going to read. And he said the title of the piece. And then he said, what are, what are we calling these things? And so we all just kind of looked around and I'm like, I don't know what we're going to call it yet. You know, let's just let's move forward with it and see where it goes. And so at the end it was, he read this just amazing piece about personal growth is really what it was about. But at the end, he, there was this kind of silence, sort of stunned silence because it was such a wonderful way of conveying feeling. And he, at the end of it, he just sort of leaned back his head and let out a howl and we all kind of laughed and howled with him. And so it, it seemed to me that that made sense that howl, sure. So then that kind of, the howl project kind of grew from there. And I still love the idea of thinking about, you know, howling in that way. And especially again, since we're all coming from the pandemic where there was such extreme isolation and silence and, you know, that kind of thing for so long, the idea of howling is, yeah, like, let's get loud, you know, share your stories. And I think for a lot of people, myself included, certainly there's been times in my life where it's, it's easier for me to connect through um, things like stories and music or songs and music. Um, it, artistic pieces in general versus uh, with another human. And so it seems to be that that's generally a safer way to go in the very beginning. And so I think that that, again, is another aspect of, the, of from, or rather with the Howler Project that, that I like, that I'm hoping for, is that by sharing these, you know, what we call like deeply human stories, it's really, I mean, we don't have too many sort of restrictions on it or, you know, kind of aspects that you have to meet, but it has to be a human story and, and some kind of human theme. And I think by telling those kinds of deeply human stories, it, it creates a really safe space for us to learn about ourselves, learn about other people, and really maybe experience that kind of connection that we've been missing. A kaleidoscopic life. What have you learned about yourself on the journey so far? How, how are you a different person? Well, there's a couple of things that I like about that. I've One is that... Um, we have this strange concept of identity is that identity is something that, that stays or that we own it or that we possess it in some way, but identity is, is fluid and it's, it changes all the time. And so I, I, I embrace that 
there's another kind of aspect that I, or fact, I guess, that I like a lot. And that is that every seven years, our body um, produce, we have basically it takes seven years for us to get brand new cells. And so our, when you think about that, like every seven years, I think about what I was doing seven years ago and who I was. And it, that to me is a calming, you know, it kind of brings a little bit of calm to the chaos, I guess, to, to know that I'm not supposed to be a different person. I'm, I'm literally, my makeup is foundationally, I am a different person than I was. And so I keep, I guess, kind of those two things in mind. And I, I honestly hope that I never stop growing. I hope that I never stop learning. And I think if the way that I kind of approach life and the fact that I don't, <laughs> I don't plan very much or at all, really, I, I think that that's something that, that I'm going to keep doing. So, yeah, who are you? What a question. <laughs> Ask me next week, Stuart. I'll have an answer for you next week. <laughs> well until next week my <laughs> guest today has been writer creative student and education advisor michelle quick michelle thank you so much for being on the show thank you for having me Stuart. lives is brought to you on kios omaha public radio and is produced by courtney beerman the music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.